Humble leaders are more concerned with what is right than being right. Now, this is an adage that I might have shared on your previous podcast because it's good career advice. Is Thrive Friends, this is your host, Dr. Solomon. How can you turn marketing mess to a brand success? Today, I'm joined by a Thrive Friend, truly special guest and a professional colleague who will answer this question. He is the former CMO of Franklin Covey. He is a radio and podcast host, leadership coach, columnist, global keynote speaker, best-selling author for Management Mess to Leadership Success, where I interviewed him a few months ago. He is Wall Street Journal bestseller for Everyone Deserves a Great Manager. And today we'll talk about his latest and newest book, The Marketing Mess to Brand Success. Because of the green screen, I have it transparent and I love it transparent because you can see the title very clearly. I had the privilege of reading this wonderful book and I will try to squeeze as much knowledge as I can from Scott during the next 20, 25 minutes. Scott Miller, welcome again on Thrive. Doctor, thank you for the invitation. Thank you for the spotlight, the platform, and thank you most for turning my book into the first ever hologram book. I mean, I'm cutting edge. Let's start with your latest book. Uh, This is the second of nine books in your series, From Mess to Success. I'll ask you the same question I asked you in our previous meeting. What is missing in the marketing library? That made you write this book? I think it's it's practical connection to sales. I think that you know, marketing books kind of fall into one of two genres, right? They're very academic books that are necessary, teach the four P's, product, price, placement, you know, position, that kind of stuff. And then there's kind of aspirational, lofty stories. But I wanted a book that was very pragmatic. I mean, that's the whole value proposition of the Mess of Success series, you know, like you call it genuine and raw and cut to the chase, mm-hmm. real. And so from my 30-year career, 10 almost, as the chief marketing officer for a global public company, the Franklin Covey Company, I wanted to draw the connection between marketing and sales. Because, doctor, I think too many people who are in marketing hide behind likes and follows and clicks and impressions and how many times the magazine is picked up in a doctor's office. No, what matters is have you built a brand that drives interest in your product, your service, that converts to revenue? to profitable cash in the bank. Let's just call it out. Marketing is there to build customers to pay our salaries. And so I wanted to write a book that was, again, very pragmatic to help marketers recognize that your job is not to hide behind brand equity. You cannot staple brand equity to the back of a bank deposit slip. Brand equity is important, but you can't fund payroll off of brand equity. So I tell marketers, stop hiding behind brand and clicks and impressions and start making sure all that you do is connected closely with sales. That's what I think was missing. It's not a new idea, but I wanted to hear a marketing person say it, not a salesperson lament it. I fully agree with you. The idea that marketing agents now are mostly about getting impressions, getting likes and comments and engagements, but this does not necessarily mean or translate into actual cash. (laughs) Basically, the table of content is 30 challenges. Yeah. And some of them will relate to you more than others based on your experience. And I picked number seven, number 11, no punning intended, and 27. So let's start with number seven, bruise hard and heal fast. And you suggest Q1 
keep your emotional momentum high, always have a plan B in case you need to pivot from plan A. What do you mean by emotional momentum, Scott? Yeah, I mean, this is just a principle that not bruise hard and heal fast. You know, in organizations, regardless of your size, you're a solopreneur, an entrepreneur, you're the owner, Fortune 50, Fortune 5000, not for profit. Everybody's got an opinion on marketing. Nobody's got an opinion on accounting or finance or IT. Like, when's the last time somebody challenged the way accounting performed the third quarter close? No one has an opinion on how much server space you need. But everybody's got an opinion on marketing. So if you're going to be a marketer, or even marketing is like one of the 10 hats you're wearing, you've got to bruise hard and heal fast. You've got to calibrate your emotions. You've got to be thoughtful, not to fall into the trap that I've seen so many professionals do, doctor. And that is, they win the battle, but they lose the war. And what that means is, is they're so fixated on, on their ego being attached to a particular campaign or a particular idea or a color scheme or a messaging strategy that they go, kind of go down with the ship. I mean, you can only die in your sword once, so pick it really carefully. And I think it's a good career strategy regardless of what your profession is, marketing or sales or psychiatry or you know, making hair ties, it doesn't matter. That don't win the battle, win the war. And the war is your influence, your reputation, your credibility. And so when someone thinks your idea isn't right, that's someone being the owner or your boss or the founder, you have to choose how to calibrate how you respond to that. Do you do that in a, tell me more, and what is it that's not hitting for you versus trying to flip into persuasion mode or convincing mode or going down with the ship? Humble leaders are more concerned with what is right than being right. Now, this is an adage that I might have shared on your previous podcast because it's good career advice is bruise hard and heal fast, right? When someone doesn't like your idea or your campaign is rejected or your thesis is challenged, ask yourself, am I going all in because my ego is so attached to this or I'm not capable of separating you know, my idea from what is right for the organization, for the brand, for the client? Because I think your reputation will suffer if you win the battle but you'll build a reputation of being thoughtful and collaborative and agile and emotionally flexible, nimble, if you focus on winning the war, the, the, war, the long-term campaign to collaborate and build a high-trust culture. Always have a plan B, right? Don't go all in on one idea because you might be doing it in a group think. It might be in a vacuum and you might have validated with your own passion and emotions and ideas and not necessarily based on all facts. And by the way, facts do change. New data comes in. Consumer preferences change. That's the big idea there. Thank you for sharing this. And I couldn't agree more with you. We all have our cognitive biases. And one of them is confirmation bias, right. where we look for data that just match what we want and ignore intentionally anything else as if it doesn't exist just to satisfy our ego, but might not be the right thing. Before we move on, I'd like to ask people watching us to open a new tab and look up Scott Jeffrey Miller, one word and check his book and his podcast and the Miller Land. And I'll leave the Miller Land without any further interpretation because I want you guys to be curious. Go and check it out. I <laughs> promise you it is G-rated and it is cute. I think that would be the adjective I will use. It wasn't G-rated at seven o'clock this morning when my three sons were refusing to put on their school uniforms. That was oh. not, that was PG-13. <laughs> <laughs> 
So now Thank let's you, move on. It's it's really beautiful website. Let's go to number eleven. Define your smallest viable yeah. market. Yeah. And you talk here about the Seth Godin's advice. Godin, Ident- huh? Yeah, the, identify the minimum number of people yeah. you would need to influence to make it worth the effort. The challenge with this one, Scott, as you know, we are now in a time where we measure our success by number of followers, yeah. number of impressions, how people could balance both. Well, I don't know if your third challenge is going to be more is not better, better is better. But that's one of the chapters in the book, right? Is this this understandable proclivity, attraction we have to more, to bigger, to better. I face the same thing, Doc, is that whether it be about your own brand or your company's brand, more is not better, better is better. And that kind of is a good chapter that sets up this chapter that I um, highlight called your smallest viable market. Now, doctor, you know from following me and reading my books, you know, at heart, I'm an aggregator. I'm not sure I've ever had an original thought in my idea other than marrying my wife, which I'm sure somebody else had as well. I just bought a bigger ring. But the point is, I'm an aggregator. And so I like to find smart people, associate with them, and then use their ideas to talk about how it has or hasn't worked in my life. And this is Seth Godin's idea. He wrote a book, of course, called This Is Marketing. He wrote lots of books, like 40 of them, right? Seth is one of the most prolific podcasters, bloggers, writers in America, right? If you're not following his blog, you should follow Seth Godin's blog. Go to sethgodin.com, an absolute masterful iconoclast. He popularized this idea in his book, This Is Marketing, which is that as marketers, as entrepreneurs, we need to be focused on the smallest viable market, not the largest viable market. Now, when you pitched your business plan for your small business administration loan, you probably had in it this largest viable market. When you looked for your private equity or VC funding, you probably also had your largest viable market. market. But what Seth tells is you can't boil the ocean. your, Your book is not for everyone. Your product is not for everyone. Stop fooling yourself. It's counterintuitive. It's restrictive. It's limiting. It's genius. That if you have the discipline and the focus to resist the gravitational pull from always thinking in grandiose scales, like I do, shock and awe, right? Everyone needs to read Marketing Mess to Brand Success. That's not true. That's delusional. Your smallest viable market is what allows you to preciously identify who is the first person that should listen to my podcast? What is their profile? What is their name? Who's the second person? Who's the third person? And it really allows you to understand what is the circumstance that they're in that I have a solution to their problem? What do they have in common? What are the lookalikes like? And it requires great discipline, but some of the biggest and best brands are those that have the foresight and the discipline Think small, think focused, and build these brand ambassadors that are just unwavering in their support and they evangelize and they refer you to others and they become for you your unpaid sales force. At Franklin Covey, we call it spear fishing as opposed to net fishing, meaning you can cast your net out and you'll find some grouper, but you'll also get a few sharks and a few eels and a few rusted bicycles and a few tires. And I write in the book, that's great if you're launching a seafood-themed restaurant, right? Which no one is that I know of, or you are. But it's spear fishing. This is a bit macabre, but you know, go to where the grouper are and, 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 and spear one by one. It does take an uncharacteristic level of focus and patience. But as Seth writes in his book, This is Marketing, those who go after their smallest viable market, I mean, isn't that the case? You want 
as few customers as is necessary. How do you define necessary, right? A billion dollars, a million dollars, impact and change 10 lives. I mean, no one wants as many customers as is necessary. You want as few as is necessary. You define what is necessary. But once you define what is your goal, I mean, your goal might be to become the largest at something. I don't want to become the largest. I want to become the best and the wealthiest, <laughs> right? And the most influential. And that might be the smallest. It might not be the biggest. Some of the best hotels, the most iconic hotels in the world are the smallest hotels. Some of the best, most well-known restaurants in the world are the smallest hotels or smallest restaurants, right? Mm-hmm. You know, last time I checked, Cleveland Clinic isn't the biggest medical center in the world, right? I'm sure there's lots of hospitals that are much larger, but it's one of the best known in the world. So resist the temptation to think about your largest viable market. Your product is not for everyone. Maybe if it's, if it, I mean, maybe if it's Colgate, right? Or Palm Olive, you know, Dove, I don't know. But 99.9% of the times, identifying your smallest viable market, having that discipline focus, resist boiling the ocean and being everything to everyone will pay off for you in the long run. That is very insightful because usually the advice you would get is the opposite. Absolutely. Is, is try to get as many clients as you yeah. can. Uh, go as big as you can. If you do not take the biggest share of the market, you will be eaten. Uh, and it's all about the market share. And the market share is about volume. It's about number of clients. It's about percentage of total revenue. How would you reconcile these two? Uh, well, I think there's times for that. By the way, for being a medical doctor, you're extraordinarily well-versed and educated on the business side of things. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> That's where the MBA comes in. You know, listen, there's a place for both, right? I'm sure there are products that are for everyone. Kleenex, unless you have a paper, you know, allergy, Kleenex is for everyone. And perhaps Advil is for everyone. Um, I don't know. Of course, there are exceptions, right, to every rule. But that's not what successful people do. People don't, you know, orient to the exception, right? They get really clear on what is the circumstance my client is in. Now, let's go to the third one. Navigate all things digital and one of the things used is uh from liz wiseman resist being the genius instead become the genius maker of others it is so overwhelming there are so many tools and we can all get trapped into that shiny object syndrome how do you make this transition to everything digital in marketing without getting lost in the ocean you know doctor when i wrote this book i had a little bit of conscious conscious crisis of confidence because I'm not a very progressive digital marketer. I can hold my own. I can talk SEO and Google analytics and marketing automation and funnels and lead scoring. I can hold my own with my peers, but I didn't want the book to be a marketing how-to guidebook, right? This is really about a marketing career book. It's how to be influential, how to build a career in marketing, how to not get sucked into black holes and rabbit holes. And so this, I dedicated only one chapter to digital out of 30, 30 challenges, only one of them. Cause I could have had a chapter on SEO and Google analytics and social and email and marketing. I could have had the whole book on that, right? That wouldn't have been my book. But here was the big ideas from this challenge is to your point, doctor, the world is overwhelming digitally and you cannot be an expert on all of that. So if you are a modern progressive marketing leader, then you'll exercise the humility not to be the genius in the room but rather to be the genius maker. 
that you have a check on your ego, that you have the humility and confidence and vulnerability to hopefully hire people around you that are experts in their area. And so as the CMO, I, I mean, obviously I had someone that was an expert in these six or seven digital areas. And what my job was, was to recruit and retain the smartest people possible. I didn't always do that because I was threatened by them. So a whole podcast on that. But that was my job, right? Was to identify experts, bring them in, mm-hmm. build a culture where they choose to stay and thrive, and then learn from them and help them integrate with each other, help them work well with each other, help them leverage their areas of expertise and ask big questions, ask you know bold questions that make their genius blossom up and protect the company from boondoggles, protect the company from over-investing, protect the company from the charismatic technology salesperson that says, oh, but then you need this and this and this because this will be leveraged. And before you know it, you know, 80 grand becomes 180 grand. And you realize three months in, I mean, I can't leverage all of that. I was sold a bill of goods, right? Because as I write, your first CMM, your first CRM is never your final CRM. Your first marketing automation system is never your final marketing automation system. Unless you break the pattern and you're really thoughtful around your tech stack and what do you really need? And have you leveraged your website before you get into all these other tools? So mine is, this chapter is more of a chapter around caution. Mm. Build prudently, build carefully. Don't get caught into all these extra bells and whistles that you may or may not have proven you need immediately. You may need them over time. But I'll tell you, woe is the CMO that just goes on this spending spree, building their massive tech stack, when four months in, they've not delivered a single qualified lead that's converted to a sale. I don't mean to be naive or simplistic. I'm sure there are many CMOs that will hear me and trash me on my lack of progressive tech experience. I'll put my stock price and market cap up against anybody else in my level in terms of understanding how to align marketing and sales, how to build a culture based on marketing principles where great talent chooses to come and stay. And that's half of marketing right there. I love how we circle back to where you started. It is the connection between marketing and sales. Absolutely. This is why I wrote the book. What was missing was I wanted to stop the constant infighting between marketing and sales, right? It's the, it's, you know, it's other than probably reputation, it's the worst nightmare of every CEO is the chief revenue officer and the chief marketing officer blaming each other and fighting and making sure the fall guy or fall gal. That was my legacy in marketing is I chose and read the book to learn all of my best practices. I chose to align marketing with sales. By the way, we were both executive officers. We made the same amount of money. We both had the same talent and charisma. Both had the same egos. But I was I was a sales executive vice president and a marketing executive vice president. And I wanted to stop the cycle of madness that was the blaming between marketing and sales. And I think too many marketers lose track of why they are in business. Who pays the salary? It's the sales who pays the salary of marketers. This could not have been said any better. The sales pay the salary for marketers. Some people won't like that, but that's a line and I think there's a lot of wisdom in it. Before we move to the final part of this wonderful conversation, we'd like to remind the audience to open a new tab, check Scott Jeffrey Miller, one word, and look up his books, especially the last one we're talking about now. I read this book, highly recommended, very practical, very raw, 
Scott, this question is the one I ask every guest on Thrive. You have been asked this question last time. We all had setbacks where we managed to go from striving to thriving. In the context of your book and the context of you being a former CMO for one of the largest consulting and leadership companies in the world, would you mind sharing one of the marketing setbacks you had and how did you overcome it? There was one day when I was reporting to the CEO and the CEO is a man that is enormously trustworthy, unimpeachable integrity, more money than anybody I know, climbed the Matterhorn, Iron Man, and just like one of those super, you know, performance athlete CEOs and lovely man. Uh, and I trust him and he trusts me. We have a very good friendship. We don't agree on everything, right? We like, you know, father and son fight sometimes like cats and dogs, respectfully. But he called me aside once in one of the meetings and gave me some of the only advice he ever gave me in over a decade of reporting to him. He's one of those sort of telepathic leaders that, you know, he wants you to kind of understand telepathically what he wants from you. Doesn't want to have an intervention. He really values harmony. Don't back him into a corner because you'll lose. But he just generally doesn't want to have to, you know, call you out if he doesn't absolutely have to. He called me aside after an executive team meeting. And with no provocation and no preamble or postamble, that's the word, which is not. He said to me, Scott, you make too many declarative statements. And he left the room. He didn't run out. He didn't scurry out. He just pulled me aside and said, Scott, you make too many declarative statements. And I thought about it. And I thought, ouch, I'm sure he's right. That might take me two minutes to come around to, right? Or three. But he was totally right. But part of my brand was overconfidence and charisma and ego and probably dogmatic, pragmatic and dogmatic, right? I was kind of always right about everything. Well, no one wants to work for the leader who's the smartest person in the room. No one wants to marry or date, be parented by the person who's always right. And that was really profound advice. I was in a mess because for the CEO to tell me that means he was fed up. Because he doesn't, he didn't dismiss with people or dispense advice extemporaneously. He's a very emotionally calibrated person. He's very thoughtful. So for him to drop that bomb on me meant that had been stewing on him for some time. Because I know him, I took it with the same gravity in which he delivered it. So I'm not sure that was a marketing mess as much as it was a brand mess, my own brand. Because your brand is, as you know, Dr. Solomon, just merely your reputation. Reputation is simply the collection of all the decisions that you make in life. And clearly my brand with him had become the know-it-all. The guy who doesn't ask questions, the guy who just offers solutions to everything. And so I think my advice to your listeners and viewers is don't find yourself as the person who's making too many declarative statements. Maybe instead find yourself as the person who's curious, insatiably curious, asking the big, bold questions, challenging themselves. And I've learned a lot from that. So that was a gift he gave me. That's what I would share. That's, I think, advice that everybody could learn from. What is your percentage of speaking to listening? What is your percentage of curiosity to, you know, exclamatory? It was Jim Collins, the author of, you know, co-author of Good to Great and Built to Last and How the Mighty Fall that says, this is where I'll, I'll send you off. Spend less time being interesting and more time being interested. And that will become a brand that will serve you well in every area of your life. How did you feel right after he said this to you? And what did you do differently since that time? Embarrassed and grateful. Embarrassed that the CEO had to tell me that. 
grateful that he summoned the courage to do it and do it in private, which is his leadership style. And uh, this was several years ago, maybe six years ago. So I'd like to think that my style was not to swing the pendulum. That's what happens to a lot of us, right? Is our egos get bruised, emotions get injured. So we swing it to the opposite, right? And we shut down or we're just super quiet or we never ask another question again or we never share another idea. You know what? Grow up, right? That's a child. Everything in moderation, right? Calibration. I'd like to think, Doc, what I did was I swung the pendulum some. I didn't swing it all the way to become a mute, right? I didn't never share an idea ever again. I didn't never, you know, speak up or speak out. I just became more mindful of, I made too many declarative statements. So I moderated with no statements, some statements, some questioning statements. And if I really thought that my voice was credible on topic, I would stand up and share it. But it was invaluable advice that I remember it word for word, six years later, I'll tell you, if you're lucky enough to have worked for a leader who's willing to move outside their comfort zone and to give you feedback on your blind spots, that is a gift that is more valuable than anything else you'll ever get in your professional career. Become that leader for someone else. Become that leader where you move outside of your comfort zone, where you can discuss what might be the undiscussables and a balance of courage and diplomacy, right? Balance those together and share someone feedback on their blind spots and prepare for them to kind of knee jerk, prepare for them to defend or dismiss or refute. That's natural human condition. But if your intent is there, if you declare your intent and say, hey, hey, doc, this may come as a shock to you, but I'd like to share some feedback on something you do that I think actually kind of lessens your credibility. I'm a huge fan of yours. So I share this with the intent to help you build your credibility, not to embarrass you. But doc, you do this thing, whatever that is, if you declare your intent up front, that's a gift that then they have to choose to accept or not accept, but you've been given them a gift, it's up to them if they choose to unwrap it. I could not agree more. There is sufficient literature to show that one of the ways of abusing power is actually not using power. And leaders who do not use their power to give feedback that's direct but also in, in a sensitive way, is a form of abuse of power. Yes, well, well said. Uh, I, heard this I heard this term last week that maybe you've heard many times. I heard it for the first time in my life last week. And that is that great cultures um, create a culture that's intense, not tense. I never heard of it. Oh, I never heard it either. Yeah. But I think it's such a great lens, right? Is people want to work in an intense culture high performance metrics and clear expectations and a high level of quality that's you know always progressing. They don't wanna work in a tense culture where you're fearful of taking risks, you're fearful of speaking up, you're fearful of where you stand with your boss, this uncertainty. No, there's no worse professional fear than confusion around where you stand with your leader. That sucks. There's no better feeling, in my opinion, is knowing where you stand with your leader, including if your standing is not good. I'd rather know the truth than to delude myself into thinking I've got a good standing and all of a sudden one day there's an intervention or I'm fired. What a pleasure to have you on Thrive. The honor is mine. Thanks again for the spotlight. Thank you. And people watching us, until we meet next time, keep safe, keep motivated, keep resilient, and see you in the next episode of Thrive.
Thank you.